Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Oil & Gas Council. I recently sat down with Travis Lowe, Matt Ritter, and Jim Schuess, the co-founders of Arrowhead Energy Partners. During the episode, Travis, Matt, and Jim walked through the Arrowhead story and why they decided to launch amidst COVID-19 in the oil price war. We also get into the weeds on the DJ Basin and why Arrowhead and their investors remain bullish on buying minerals in this area. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what they have to say. Jim, Matt, Travis. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Thank Thanks you. for having us, Tim. No, absolutely. So before we jump into the Hourhead story, y'all's you know background in the mineral space and just the, the overall trends and what you guys are seeing, let's take a walk down memory lane and give a little background on your careers, where you guys grew up, where you went to school, just painting a picture on how you got to this point. And also, um, you know, you guys... We're all partner now in Hourhead Energy Partners. How you guys originally crossed paths and decided to to join forces to to launch Hourhead. So Matt, I'll I'll start with you, and then we'll go down the list. Well, mine will probably be the least uh, impressive or interesting uh, oil and gas background. I grew up northwest of Chicago, and I moved to Denver about 20 years ago to work for Janus Funds. And after about six months of working there, I got into the commercial real estate business. And I've been a lifelong entrepreneur here in Denver, have a number of businesses that I've been involved with. My first main business being Pinnacle Real Estate Advisors, which is a commercial real estate company that I still co-own with my partner, co-founder. And uh, I have a degree in finance from Illinois State University. Since I moved out here, got married and have two kids, 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. Yeah, just glad to be in Denver. I got into oil and gas business in 2015. Our commercial real estate business was rocking and, and pretty stable. And that last downturn in 2015, I thought it was an opportune time to get into oil and gas. So I have a much more limited oil and gas experience than Travis and Jim, which I think makes us a good team. Awesome. And Travis, a little background on yourself? Sure. Born and raised in Denver, in and around Denver. CU grad, MBA from Regis. You know, I've got two little girls, Lyric and Legend. And, you know, my wife I've been with for 17 years, got started in oil and gas back in 2004, buying leases in North Dakota and Weld County, you know, kind of was traditionally trained landmen, learned to run mineral title, deal with surface use agreements, more mainly from the um, operator standpoint, working contract basis on behalf of operators and Noble and PDC at the time. Eventually, I just kind of worked myself into a in-house landman job with PDC Energy back in 2006, chasing rigs around from a permitting and title clearance standpoint for PDC, chasing three rigs around back when we were drilling vertical wells. So the rig was moving every 18 hours. It was pretty hectic. So went back on an MBA, got out of land specifically and got into strategic planning and corporate development. That's where Jim and I connected back in 2009. Jim and I worked together at PDC for roughly five years, five, six years. We were involved with basically everything that PDC did from acquisitions, divestitures, equity issuances, debt issuances, and together we did roughly $3 billion of corporate transactions together. I left PDC in the end of 2013, joined Samson Resources, helped kind of go through the stages of bankruptcy, you know, and, and was 
arguably the last employee in Denver for Samson Resources. So it was a interesting course. And then joined Wolf Resources where I got connected to Matt back in 2018. But, you know, I've been able to have some really, really good experiences and exposure to some great people in oil and gas, you know, like Dewey Gurdum and Lance Locke and John McCready and Sean Wolverton and Richard Fraley. So it's just been a great, great way for me to get exposure to the industry. Awesome. And Jim, uh, uh, some background on yourself, and then we'll jump into the discussion, guys. Thanks. Yeah, so also a Colorado native. Grew up on the Western Slope, a little town called Hotchkiss, Colorado, North Fork Valley. Really small town kind of growing up. Didn't really get a taste of the big city till really got into middle school, high school, kind of got older. School Mines grad in Golden, two reasons. It's a great school, especially for, you know, an energy-based degree, a petroleum engineering graduate, and also as in-state tuition for, you know, somebody watching pennies growing up in a small town. Started, you know, working there while I was at school for Barry Petroleum here in Denver. Kind of morphed from that right out of school when I did graduate from that kind of internship role into a couple of small private equity companies in 2007, 2008. The company I was with in 2009 was drilling horizontally in the Barnett Shale at the time, which to a young whippersnapper out of school, it was just another job. It was exciting. It was new. You know, looking back, it was crazy to think that, you know, I was sitting there on the cusp of what really the industry became over the next decade, not knowing it at the time, you know, whether that's, you know, being young, ignorant, or just being excited to have a job and, and work. So doing the Barnett Shale horizontal work, operations, completions, well design, 09 downturn hit, you know, the credit crunch, that company got folded up into another company in Dallas. I was left kind of without a job for about a month. Ended up kind of talking around through some network contacts I'd already developed in the short time I'd been in industry. Ended up getting a kind of contract, a full-time opportunity at PDC Energy in late 2009. Really great opportunity to kind of jump on board with that company there. Met Travis, as he had mentioned, and kind of worked on, you know, acquisitions, divestiture work. Slowly got morphed into kind of a reservoir engineer with a focus on A&D, but also SEC reserves which was kind of an interesting niche to build out. So really it was an interesting kind of build out of PDC's view, which was, you know, almost all A&D work was done almost in lockstep with, you know, SEC reserves in mind being a publicly traded company. So as Travis mentioned, you did quite a bit of work in all senses of transactions, you know, be it credit, divestitures, acquisitions, all sorts of uh, items there. Stayed with them all the way through late 2018. Finally reached a point where, you know, my job there was kind of not a plateau, but more of just a, you know, it had run its course and there were some other opportunities that seemed exciting out there. Travis reached out to me and they were looking to kind of, you know, add and build out additional technical capabilities at Wolf Resources at the time. So got to talking with him, met Matt and some others there and kind of came over, I think it was late 2018 and kind of worked to bring the, my technical background and expertise to the Wolf team and really worked on that and built that out over the last two years and then kind of really taking cumulatively my knowledge and background and bringing that to the Arrowhead side here. Married over 10 years, got a set of twins, seven years old, so definitely in the dad world too, especially the whole working from home thing, kind of being dad and, and employee and partner all at the same time now, so it's been fun. I share your pain and love and excitement for little kids at home. <laughs> I think I got a four and a five-year-old, so we're all in the same boat. <laughs> um, so the three all have interesting, an interesting mix of skill sets. I think all great teams, you know, bring strengths and 
that complement weaknesses, right? So we got real estate and land background with Matt, you know, Travis, you're kind of on the A&D land side and then Jim, you're on the A&D engineering side. Quick one, you know, Matt, I'm interested. So you really entered the space with Wolf in 2015, but there's so many parallels to real estate. And, you know, we've seen that with a lot of other episodes we've done, um, the parallels being drawn from a financial perspective, right? Trying to speak the language of a real estate investor, translating it over to minerals and royalties to educate yield co-investors out there that might be looking to do 1031 or invest directly, you know, kind of diversify within real estate, right? Can you speak to that a little further? What piqued your interest initially? You had mentioned you saw the downturn and thought it was a great opportunity. Were you semi-educated on the space living in Denver? Did you have friends in the circle? We'd love to kind of hear if we can all go in your shoes because the ultimate purpose of this podcast is to try to educate the investment community out there. Uh, broadly speaking, there's so many folks that fit in the yield co-investor bucket and, and we just want to get the word out in the mineral space. And so it would be great if there's going to be a lot of folks that were in your shoes in 2014, 15. What were you thinking and how'd you make the jump? Yeah, for me, it was my interest in the space was driven a little bit by the fact that my company Pinnacle was pretty stable. We had hired essentially a CEO, which gave me a little bit of freedom to do other entrepreneurial ventures. And I wanted to enter a market that was going through a pretty hard recession because that's a good time to enter a market. I think that as an oil and gas outsider, generally, I think most folks that did not grow up in this industry see it as extremely abstract and difficult to understand. And I believe it's actually really similar to real estate. In real estate, you buy an asset and you have a set of cash flows. Usually the cash flows are relatively small for the first three to five years. Then you sell that asset and you have a large cash infusion, which creates your return. And oil and gas is a little different. It's almost the opposite. You have a declining stream of cash flows, and then you would sell the asset for presumably less than you have bought it for. But the combination of those cash flows kick out a certain type of return. So I think one one takeaway is um, oil and gas is an amazing business, excellent people, wonderful personalities in a cooperative environment. And it's almost like a black box to all of those that are outside of it. And so for me, I, I actually think there's a ton of parallels. I think it's very similar. You know, when we entered the business, I think it was the real estate market was extremely, I would argue, overvalued, although I haven't been right in that call yet. And it's been five years. Prices just keep going up and up and up. And so I was just looking for another market where there was value, where you could buy assets. And we certainly did that. Another expertise that I had is the experience of building a sales team. And at our organization, we were out organically sourcing deals. And since 2017, we did that really well. We, we sourced over 800 individual deals, about $60 million in mineral assets, $15 million in working interests, about 19,000 acres. And you know that was folks calling landowners and mineral owners and meeting them at their property or farm and signing deals. So real organic sales type force, which was an experience I had had from building Pinnacle. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 
788-588-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. Now that, that's great. Can you um, speak to building the sales team? And did you ever do a hybrid between real estate folks and those who worked at Wolf on the mineral side? We did an episode with Jace Graham. He runs Rising Phoenix Resources and he has a real estate company under the Rising Phoenix brand. And he has a, a team that does both. And he just said there's a lot of overlap and training the team. There's a lot of cross-pollination in terms of tactics and approaching you know, mineral owners that there's lessons learned on the real estate side from oil and gas minerals tactics. And there's oil and gas learnings on the real estate side, you know, technologies and all different ways to get, you know, mineral seller attention. Any kind of insights or comments around that? You know, there's a fair bit of overlap. I think it's a different, shorter sales cycle in mineral buying versus real estate. Real estate's more of a long-term relationship type focus. And we never had any overlap. We never had either of the companies share resources. Interesting concept. You know, we were doing the same type of training, which I think Travis led for us, which was interpersonal skills, negotiation. You know, we were training all these guys on the same things and and mineral buying as we were in commercial real estate. And so building that team was kind of a, a similar story to the Pinnacle experience. And I think one of the key reasons, or, or maybe the key reason we had success is really Travis and Jim add, adding the technical capability. You know, anybody can get a mineral owner on the phone and try to identify value and put a deal together. But Jim and Travis brought a technical expertise to us and our team, Wolf, brought a technical expertise that allowed us to really understand what we were buying, which is more complicated than commercial real estate. If you look at uh, apartment complex that's 200 units, you know, it's pretty easy to understand what you think the cash flows will be. Whereas in oil and gas, it is truly a black box that only those technical folks can help you figure out. And so that's, that's the real value that I think Travis and Jim brought to us. Yeah, Travis and, and Jim, I'll throw this question out to you. Uh, you guys were very successful from a grassroots perspective on the ground. You know, I look at, I'll kind of tie in a, a real estate analogy here. What, you know, when I drive through my neighborhood and I see real estate signs, I just think to myself, good God, there are so many freaking real estate agents around. That's got to be really difficult to differentiate. On the ground game, it's getting more and more crowded. You start to hear uh, stories where, listen, if, if you have a mineral in a core core area, your phones rang more than once and you've gotten more than one offer. How did you build the team to differentiate and get successful on transactions? And was it that technical understanding and being able to, to speak layman terms to folks to get them comfortable enough to let their minerals go? So, you know, Tim, great question. You know, I, I kind of think of that particular, you know, circumstance in, in a couple different ways. It's really kind of being obsessed with the underwriting and the risk around the assets that you're buying. So that was why Jim was so instrumental. He joined us in late 2018 uh, at the Wolf level. Really, the, the organization hadn't been super, super technical or super kind of reliant on engineering to drive our decision ma- making around values. You know, when Jim came in, he, he engineered the entire basin. It was something there specifically on the DJ. It was something he was already an expert at. Then disseminating that information into something or a tool that the buyers could use. So it was mapping, GIS, engineering, top sheets, everything that we could basically provide to the, to the acquisition staff so they could get on the phone with someone 
And if the mineral owner was willing to do it, they could do a deal instantaneously with them. They had everything at their discretion, you know, easy for them to get to that would allow them to be successful. In addition to that is that we became obsessed with what was kind of the, the sellers or the mineral owners behaviors that we could pick up on that could make us better and make us more optimized. So it's really kind of reducing the sales cycle that Matt referred to. It was what time of day do we call? If it's a male or female, what do, do we call them at different times of the day? What do we say to them specifically? It really kind of getting into the, the weeds of stats that we track through Salesforce and other systems that we, we said, you know, we can be optimized if we do these certain behaviors. I think that's really kind of what made us successful specifically in the last, you know, two, three years at Wolf. It was really kind of just putting the, the calling engine, the hardworking guys that work there, just optimizing their behavior. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, data is one thing, but if you can interpret data and, you know, translate it into better results, that's, that's the name of the game. Yes. What, what time we would call, how often we would call. Is there a sequence to, it, is it better to have somebody get a letter and then for them to get a call? Or is it better to get a call and then a letter and then a letter and then a call? You know, there's a certain sequence to make behavior optimized from a mineral, from a mineral seller's perspective. That's awesome. And so you, Matt had mentioned, uh, you know, 60, what was it? 60,000. I, I don't want to misspeak here, but it, it was a smaller portion uh, on the working interest side. So you guys did pick up some non-op. You're doing royalties. You had mentioned mapping out the DJ. What was the base and focus? Just a quick, you know, I'll, I'll let any one of you jump in here. Just a quick synopsis of the wolf story here, and then we'll get into to Arrowhead because you guys are Rockies players, right, is what I'm trying to spell out. Yep, Travis. Yes, mainly Rockies players, specifically under the Wolf umbrella. Yes, we were, we're Rockies players. We're, we're beginning to diversify from Rockies specifically. Now we are, you know, focused on Oklahoma, North Dakota, Kansas, Texas, Wyoming, Louisiana, and Colorado, obviously. The DNA at Wolf, the Wolf level, had been, you know, DJ specific. Also, you know, with Jim and I, we've been in the basin and been working in the basin for a, you know, a long time, you know, 15, 16 years. So we know the basin really, really well. So it's always going to be in our DNA, but we, we're diversifying and going away from the DJ specific. Okay. And did you guys recycle assets along the way and actively manage the portfolio or did you buy and hold? What was the structure at Wolf? Yeah. So the, the Wolf engine, they bought, we bought around $60 million cost basis of assets mainly those assets were sold and flipped to mineral aggregators that would that would buy from us later on in the maturity of wolf there were investment funds that were raised on basically the three people that you're talking to here in our networks mainly driven by you know Matt's network that we would raise funds put funds together and start putting minerals in those funds to allow them mature and accrete value when you buy and flip minerals, you are capturing some of that value, but you really don't capture 100% of the value unless you're allowing those minerals to mature. And that's really what the focus of Arrowhead is. Gotcha. So let, let's transition into the Arrowhead story. I mean, I know the, the ink is still drying on y'all's business cards, right? It's new. You're, you're <laughs> shot to market. A little background. I thinks we have business cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, definitely, you definitely need those, huh? In this environment, whether you actually had them or not. But when did you guys come to market? What's your size? The strategy is a bit different. I know you have a leaner structure as well. So is it going to be ground game focused? Are you going to be sourcing deals in a different way? 
I'd love for everyone to give the the top down overview on on what the strategy is going forward. Yeah, so our intention at Arrowhead is uh, goes back a little bit to the Wolf story. We had such a great group at Wolf and such a wonderful team, and we had so much fun and had a ton of success. And when COVID happened and Russia Saudi oil war happened, you know, we really kind of looked ourselves in the mirror and unfortunately thought that we were going to go down the private equity path. We had been talking to a private equity company and we're pretty close to getting a large commitment. We had 25 or 30 employees. And unfortunately, that whole market just kind of shut down and still probably arguably shut down. We all kind of sat around and looked at each other and, and said, what's the best path for um, each of us individually and collectively? And Travis, Jim and I, and a few other folks from Wolf felt like it would be, there'd be an opportunity for us to obtain 80% of the value or what we're trying to accomplish in the marketplace, i.e. buying minerals with 20% of the team. So Travis, Jim and I partnered up and a couple other folks will come with us. And our intentions are going to be like we had in the past. We've raised two funds at Wolf. We've raised a fund at the Arrowhead level is going to be to buy minerals and hold them to maturity. I don't have a lot of add to add to the to the wolf to the you know the wolf story but you know at the arrowhead level i would really love to see us replicate some of the things that we did at wolf you know by having our own individual you know calling engine mineral aggregation engine because the group that you know kind of made that that organization really kind of get up and going and having you know 70 percent year over year growth were that we you know kind of the technical wings that we kind of talked about earlier so i'd like to leverage what we've learned and and really kind of stand that type of organization back up again. You know, I think that we're still trying to really discover where the best places to deploy those efforts are, but I, I believe that we will find that niche and we will deploy them again. When did you guys decide to split off and when did you start fundraising? What's the timeline? You said post-COVID. We're five months into this thing now, right? What was the time frame around that? You know, it, it came together really, really fast. We started to talk really towards the end of June, the latter, latter part of end of June. And then within weeks, you know, we had kind of put an organization together. We had raised our first fund as AEP. We were able to raise, you know, a pretty good amount of, of capital in five days, you know, where we mainly focused on deploying that capital and producing and non-producing royal, you know, minerals and royalties in the DJ. So it came together really, really quickly. Hey guys, just a heads up that the Oil and Gas Council will be hosting a series of minerals and royalties focused webinars in the upcoming months, including topics such as investment strategies for private equity in the minerals and royalty space and buy side strategies in the minerals and royalty space amidst COVID-19 and the oil price war. If you're interested in getting registered for these webinars so you can tune in to the live discussions, then please visit oilandgascouncil.com forward slash webinars or email me at tim.powell at oilcouncil.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. So a couple of things on that. One, you're fundraising this environment. That's interesting. And the fact that you got traction so quickly. Matt, was that from your background? Was that kind of high net worth real estate folks? Was it a combination of who you've done business in the past collectively as a team? And then was uh, a lot of the attraction specifically around the DJ because if you were fundraising around that as a core concept of Arrowhead, that's a bit of a head scratcher for me because it's such a contrarian play. I'll let Jim comment on the DJ, but the, the group of investors was past high net worth guys that I've done a handful of real estate deals with. Generally, the, the majority of them were also investors in our first fund at Wolf, which I think we raised, invested, and sold in 15 months. And it was a mid fifties IRR 
And then we're also investors generally in our second fund at Wolf. So same kind of folks. And, you know, it was very interesting going out to them and talking about raising money. They were extremely bullish on the marketplace. They really felt like they were seeing a bottom. I mean, this, this was a month after the, the May prompt traded at negative $40, right? And so they really felt like this was a bottoming in the industry and there'd be an opportunity. They were extremely aggressive and excited about being able to invest in the business. Meanwhile, these are folks that have done a lot of real estate investing. And so that business is pretty difficult to invest in right now with an unknown market cycle happening and really not having been able to invest in, in a whole bunch of deals that created value in the, in the last year or so just because the market prices have run so far. I'll let Jim and, and maybe Travis comment on the DJ because we think we have a, a really good thought process around the DJ. Yeah, from the, from the DJ perspective, I think there's an aspect of this that, you know, I think it's a little bit of an enigma and a head scratcher, like you mentioned. But I think the piece that the DJ has really shown over the last decade is, is you know, it's one of the few horizontal plays where you have an existing 21 to 22,000 vertical well data set in and amongst the acreage. So you've de-risked the productivity of the reservoir to the point and you know, nine to 10 years into fully down space sections, plethora of tests to figure out the optimal spacing and the repeatability of the results across what we call the core in the Wattenberg field of the DJ. That's really, when we say DJ Basin, that's really where our focus is, is in the Wattenberg field. I mean, it really says to me as a technical person that the risk that exists in the basin and specifically in the field is really above ground. And it's around some of the, the regulatory headwinds, you know, some of the history of the activists in the basin and in the region kind of becoming more vocal and more active. I think one aspect of that that's maybe unique to at least the Arrowhead team as we sit here is, you know, two of the three of us are Colorado natives. All three of us have lived here for a very long time. So it's one of those, you, you start to understand how Colorado ticks from a political standpoint. And when you live in it day to day, you read different articles of local papers, you talk to people, you're involved in some of the, the activism in the basin on the industry's behalf. You really start to live and breathe what goes on here. You start to get a much better sense of the reality of the situation versus, say, the headlines of the situation. And really that balancing against the, I would argue, the gold-plated repeatability of the subsurface in the Wattenberg field in terms of a horizontal development. I mean, that really is why it's always been kind of a, a focus for me technically in my career, but also for Wolf and now Arrowhead has been, you know, it's a key area that drives repeatable results. And you started to see some of that take place where, you know, a large majority of the M&A activity that's happened recently, even in light of COVID, has had a very heavy hand involved in the DJ Basin, be it Oxy and Andarco, Noble and Chevron last week, the PDC-SRC merger. You start to see that. I think it speaks to the technicals of the stories where the DJ is a, a repeatable asset that can drive some really long-term value accretion for anyone who gets to add their portfolio. Yeah, listen, there's no question from in a low-cost environment, especially the DJ is extremely competitive. And so you see if you look at companies that have DJ Permian exposure, dollars are being allocated towards the DJ right now. So you can't, can't argue with the below ground. The above ground is what spooks everybody. But I really like your comment on being local and you know, not to bring up the legitimacy of news these days, but 
I think local news agencies are some that you know, have a lot of integrity still and report things without an agenda. And so if you're seeing all that different perspective and you're living it, you can come up with some different opinions and not headline read, like you said. I, just kind of a small story going down on a tangent. And this is one thing I love about you know my job. Pre-COVID, I, I travel quite a bit. I always value on the ground relationships, meeting face-to-face, things of that nature. And you know, Canada has been a market that's had a lot of challenges over the last few years. If you uh, headline read up in Canada, it, it seems like it's completely done, right? And I remember I had 30, 40 meetings in a week in Calgary, and over half of them were small private producers. And I, I kind of stepped away from it and I said, there are some really solid light oil producers in Southeast Saskatchewan under 5,000 barrels a day that have incredibly good returns. And it's just when you're in it and you're not just reading the headlines in the paper, you have a different takeaway. And so I don't know if that you know, little reference is, makes a whole lot of sense, but I, I 100% know where you're coming from. That being said, there are a lot of people who disagree with you. And I'll just throw out one thing for you guys to kind of argue against, and that's to make the right returns in minerals, a lot of times you're going to be a long-term holder. And the longer you're holding on to something, there's a lot of uncertainty on how the future can play out. And there's a lot of uncertainty in Colorado going forward. There's headwinds politically at a macro level for oil and gas. And then at the state level, those are magnified in Colorado. So the, the one concern for institutional capital is we want to hold this for 10 plus years. What if we, you know, the returns are good now, but what if we get three, four, five years down the road and all of a sudden Colorado has a not, not, you know, it's an out of going out of business sign on the front door for minerals, right? Then you're stuck with them. Any, I'm sure you bake in a lot of that risk and underwriting, but what do you say to that? Are these people just headline reading? I think there's an aspect of it too, relative to that kind of thought process, I think is more of, you know, I think it is very heavily probably a headline read tinge to the view where you only know what you know based on what you can research. And really seeing from that standpoint, I mean, balancing the view of the risk of development in the DJ, I think is an interesting aspect because one thing Colorado seems to always come through with, and it's as a native, it seems to have always been baked into the DNA of people I've known that have grown up here is you figure out a way to make it work for everybody. And I think even in the last week, you've started to see that kind of attitude take hold on a governmental level. You had, you know, our governor here in the state of Colorado was one of the first proponents of a setback initiative back in 2014, where at the very last minute, he sat down with then Governor Hickenlooper and worked out what they called the grand bargain to where they updated the rules. He pulled the initiative off the ballot. They worked on a kind of a revamp of the regulatory agency framework at the time. Fast forward, now Governor Polis, you know, just met last week and agreed that there is now a hiatus on any ballot initiatives pro or against the industry for at least until the 2024 election cycle, and even if not beyond, which I thought was interesting in the sense of, you know, there's a lot of saber rattling on both sides. There tends to be it in any election year on any issue. But what I've also noticed is Colorado seems to always, you know, come together and figure out a way to make it work that's amenable to all sides, as long as all sides are agreeable to be, 
realistic and pragmatic for the solution. A one-size-fits-all draconian approach either direction, pro or against industry, doesn't seem to ever really get traction in this state as referenced by, you know, the defeat of the proposition in 2018. I think the other aspect of that is from the capital perspective, the deploying capital in the basin, I mean, yeah, Noble's only rig globally that was running was in the DJ. I mean, I think that speaks to the quality of the asset and subsurface and the operators that do develop in the Weld County area of the DJ basin. I mean, I think it goes through as there's never been an ISET in one of those companies. There was never really a sense of I'm going to throw in the towel and we're done. It's how do we find a solution to keep this working because it's worth it. And I think the more our industry has been proactive in Colorado to get the word out of the good that we do in the community, for the economy, for all of us, I think has gone a long ways to kind of offset the negative connotations that come from, you know, the view of our industry on a global scale. Also, from our perspective at Arrowhead, from a technical lens, I view that, you know, the regulatory environment in Colorado is very robust. It's fairly lengthy relative to other states, but it's still uh, an environment you can do business in. You just have to know how to navigate it and be proactive to be a good steward of the environment because we all have to live here. So I think there's an aspect of it where it can sound very you know, risky at the headline level, but it doesn't take much of a dig down deep to understand the quality of the subsurface is probably second to none US onshore in terms of where places to deploy capital. And from a political standpoint, there's a lot more that we have in common than we don't in terms of what's good for Colorado, what's good for the economy as a whole uh, in the state that a lot of the regulatory agencies are starting to see that and realize that it's worth, worth figuring out a way to move forward that works for everybody. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. On the political front, I got a question for you. So we do a lot of work in Latin America. And unfortunately for Latin America, when it's election year, everything kind of stops, especially if it's a coin flip on parties changing hands. Investment stops, a lot of activity stops because there's a, a real risk of you getting your assets nationalized, which is, you know, talk to Repsol Argentina, right? Circa couple decades ago. You don't really have that in the US, right? But to some degree, there might be a little bit of a pullback on the investor side because you have some interstate elections going on at various levels of government. You guys, I don't want to you know, beat a dead horse here. You guys are comfortable with some of the risks. You see opportunity. You see it as a window of opportunity to jump in while people kind of, you know, using a metaphor of they're, they're hitting the brake in traffic right now and you think you can hit the pedal and, and make up some room here. Have you ever thought about it from that perspective? Just kind of a food for thought. Yeah, from a perspective on that sense, I'll definitely want to hear Matt and Travis's view. But, you know, from my perspective, historically, when I was at PDC through all of the different setback initiatives, I mean, it was nearly every two years you were dealing with some sort of political headwind. And 
you know, it's really going through and through all of that, rig counts rarely moved, completion crew counts rarely moved. I thought it was very interesting that it, there was a big rush to permit locations in 2018 with that setback initiative, though, you know, the current was always kind of leaning towards, you know, the likelihood of it passing was really low, at least in terms of the mindset. But I think from the standpoint here is, especially given the current environment of the macro U.S. You know, energy space, you know, the fact is, is that, you know, we've lost a fair amount of rigs and completion crews in the DJ, but there's still activity, which I think is critical, especially from a minerals valuation standpoint, is the likelihood in the core Wattenberg of an asset being developed still has a lot of weight. And there's a lot of at least relative certainty, especially relative to some of the other plays that maybe the subsurface isn't as mapped out as well, or the the downspacing isn't as baked into the valuation and known today. I think that speaks to why we still think, you know, the asset itself, the asset base in the DJ, especially the core Wattenberg, still has a lot of attraction to, if you're going to invest in minerals anywhere, invest where the rigs are still running, so to speak. So that's where my view, Matt, Travis, I'd love for you to kind of jump in. Yeah, you know, from an investment standpoint, I mean, look at some of the larger transactions that have occurred that, you know, recently that have really kind of impacted the DJ. You have PDC doubling up in coming together with Synergy. You have, you know, Oxy coming in and, and taking out Anadarko. You have Chevron coming in and taking out Noble. Those are some pretty big bets, you know, and, and they've gotten comfortable with the risk profile too. And I believe that that's a signal for everyone to say, hey, you know, the DJ, although you know, it's kind of got a little bit of a black eye as far as a political environment goes. But man, subsurface and repeatability and the fact that this is probably the premier basin in the country from a risk return standpoint and an EHS standpoint, you know, I, I think this is a great place to be. You know, it, maybe it's because we understand it and we believe in it, but it's hard to find a basin that competes with the DJ, with all of the you know, regulatory with all of the subsurface, all the variables combined. It's it's a premier basin. You know, one thing I find interesting on the EHS reporting regulatory side, I was having a chat with a mineral CEO a couple months back. He's like, you know, Tim, he goes, that actually it's it's a tough environment for an EMP company. But from a minerals buyer perspective, they have to be so transparent that the operators do that when you're trying to underwrite undeveloped activity or undeveloped minerals and plan for development activity, because there's no better place than the DJ. He's like, you got so much more information on hand. And it goes back to what Jim was saying about how de-risk the basin is. So you combine all that. And at the end of the day, if, if you can buy undeveloped minerals and get them into cash flow as soon as possible, that's where some great returns are going to be realized. Any comments on that strategically? Yeah, I'll step in, guys. I, I think that's a great comment, and I think that's very true. Jim can talk about the technical way that these operators are doing that, but just sharing clarity with the marketplace just by having to put permits in well in advance and understanding what their expectations are in the market is is absolutely a benefit to us that we probably you probably don't have in other basins. Another comment I'd like to follow up on is you had said that you identified the opportunity that is not having a Permian type frenzy of mineral buyers coming from out of the state and Texas. And we do think that competitive environment is to our advantage. You do have a lot of folks who just won't go here because they don't understand it. Whereas when we have boots on the ground, we feel like we understand it well. 
And some of the ways we offset that risk, although you know, a few of these things aren't specific to the political risk, but our asset allocation and operator allocation in the deals we buy are pretty evenly distributed between the biggest three to four operators in the basin. And from an asset allocation perspective, the biggest three to four statuses. So we have a pretty equal status allocation between PDP, ducks, permits, and long-term deals. And then a little micro solve there is, politically speaking, what a lot of folks have done, a lot of mineral buyers have done, is just stayed away from the city limits and minerals and, and units that are being developed within the city limits. And that may take away some of the, or a lot of the political risk. And so there are ways to kind of sidestep some of those risks. Thanks for the collective comments on this. I, I know the Hourhead story is more than the DGI. Just, uh, I think it's really interesting to chat about that and, and get in y'all's headspace. And it all makes sense, right? I can't really refute any of that outright. So fantastic. You guys are expanding. So why are you expanding? What's the rationale behind that? Is it a commodity mix to hedge, you know, get a hedge within your portfolio? Is it just diversification 101, getting into other areas? You know, you look at transportation risk and things of that nature. We'll have some thoughts just flushing out the broader acquisition strategy. And also to reference, uh, how big are you guys, right? You, you had talked about 60 million deployed on a cost basis at Wolf, and, and you just closed a fund in five days, you know, just relative size and thoughts going forward on additional funds and, and what the vision is. From a strategy standpoint, I think in terms of the basin diversification, uh, our view is really taking, you know, you speak to a lot of the, the EHS hurdles and some of the other data, you know, that sits out there and the transparency required of operators. I think the biggest thing for us is, you know, diversification mainly just to spread our wings, so to speak, in terms of mineral aggregation and deal flow, you know, outside the DJ. We kind of know the DJ like the back of our hand. So it's, you know, that's always going to be there, but it's like, okay, now what? Where's the next horizon that we shoot for, so to speak, that, that we kind of take everything we've learned and morph it into 2.0, you know, mineral aggregation and move into different basins and take what we've learned along the way and deploy it in these areas. So I think there's a certain aspect of, you know, how we approach the underwriting, how we approach the, the sales cadence, talking to landowners, everything that we've cumulatively kind of pulled together, you know, getting a chance and figuring out kind of focus areas to go to in these different basins and really see, okay, let's flex our muscle, so to speak, in these other areas and see where things take us and what we learn going forward in those areas. But really taking everything we've learned, because from an operational standpoint, if you can figure out how the DJ ticks, a lot of these other basins are a little bit easier to grasp. And then you have a little bit of a spare change in your pocket, so to speak, from a brain power perspective to spend on, be it demographic information of your landowners, drilling down into you know, the nuances of the permitting cycles, the nuances of different aspects of each basin that make them tick so you can be more successful there than, than just a run-of-the-mill kind of approach. That's kind of from a strategic standpoint, how we view the other basins and expanding is more getting our wings, spreading them out, and moving on to other places to deploy the same strategy and, and execution plan that we had in the DJ. And it's a scale thing too, right? Because the DJ is, is only so big, and it's hard to put tons of money to work. So if you guys wanted to expand and continue to grow the store year on year, if you were able to replicate the model and the process in other basins, you could put more money to work. Are there specific basins you guys have earmarked, kind of your top two or three? Yes, you know, we're, we're actively exploring, obviously DJ is the core, but, um, you know, the Bakken, 
Haynesville, um, Scoop Stack, Eagleford, Powder River Basin, some pockets in Kansas, some pockets in Western Colorado. We're interested in buying in those areas, mainly on a pre-drill bit basis, but we really are focused on also producing royalties. You know, we've found we found to have some success from mineral owners that that want to you know kind of sell off their royalty their royalty streams for a lump sum payment, and you know we're actively searching for those opportunities too. We, you know, we're really kind of exploring all those major oil plays that you can identify in addition to you know Haynesville, which is uh, you know a gas play. What about working interests? And I don't know if this is a coincidence or not, but there are a handful of players out there that like a non-op royalties blended strategy, and they happen to be Rockies focused. <laughs> and I know you, you can probably put two and two together and know who I'm referencing, sure. but I see more of that up in the Rockies versus other areas. The model makes sense from an investment perspective. Are you guys going to continue to do that? You know, maybe more PDP on the non-op side and then allows you to take more development risk on the mineral side at balancing out the greater portfolio. Matt, love you to take a stab at that. Yeah, you know, we've had great success with uh, non-op. Our first fund was was 100% non-op and it was a mid-50s IRR net to our investors. We've generally shied away from them recently and we'll evaluate deals in that space for sure on the go forward, but we're, we're generally pretty focused on minerals and mineral acquisition. And do you guys look, at, are you purely fee minerals? Do you look at overrides? Is there any preference there? And do you look at corporates? So you bring up overrides. You guys have a good track record on the grassroots side, but are you exploring corporate deals? Yeah, you know, the corporate deals are very interesting. And, you know, th- those deals are out there. You know, I think that, you know, later on this year, when these larger operators go through their bank redeterminations with their revolving credit facilities, you know, just because of how reserves are accounted for, there's going to be some write downs to the reserve basis for a lot of these operators. When that happens, you know, the, the lines of credit that these larger banks have allocated towards these operators, they're going to be reduced. And there's probably going to be circumstances, most likely going to be circumstances where operators are going to be faced with, hey, my, my revolver's going down. I'd really like to keep my rigs, rigs running because uh, if not, then I've got a real big issue 18 to 24 months now when my production's falling off. So, you know, a lot of operators, I believe, are going to be motivated to sell off portions of their, you know, their production streams to, you know, really kind of bring forward some of the value that is left in the tail of the curves, uh, bring that value forward and deploy that capital back into, you know, drill plans. And I think that those override from the company level, I think a lot of those deals will get done and, and we are exploring those. Overrides, in addition to that, you know, on federal lands, you know, are really appealing. You know, you have large federal leases that, you know, you can get one producing well to, to hold those leases and buying overrides into those larger units allows you to have a huge amount of upside. I mean, finding those niches and those, those opportunities, you know, are difficult, but if they can be found there, can be hugely lucrative. Yeah. One question on the corporate side, which I always kind of think to myself on is scale. So, Put another way, I was chatting with someone, kind of asking a similar question, private conversation, right after COVID happened. And this guy was not a proponent of, of corporate deals. He preferred peer-to-peer, you know, buying from aggregators or going on the ground. And he said, Tim, the problem with, in my experience with corporates is that, especially in a downturn, they're trying to, you know, put the, the house is burning down and they're trying to put out the fire and, and that fire, metaphor being their balance sheet. 
and restructuring debt. We're, we're talking about larger scale, right? Hundreds of millions of dollars. And he said, to put the, the time and the resources into an override carve out or some sort of royalty structure probably doesn't move the needle enough for a lot of companies when you have, especially you have uh, downsizing and staffing and not everyone can do everything, right? You got to pick and choose what moves the needle the most. I know you can never talk in absolutes, right? So it's probably not the same for everybody, but what are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, if someone's trying to figure out how to refi a billion dollars worth of debt, does an $80 million override carve out, do they just, they couldn't be bothered with it? Because I, I talked to a lot of the IOCs and the majors and they're just like, yeah, I don't even want to bother on looking at something <laughs> like that, right? Yeah, and you know, I keep pointing back, I believe it was last June, where Antero did a $400 million transaction, an override transaction, with, I believe it's Sixth Street Partners. And right. that deal was a $400 million deal. You know, it takes capital to do those deals, obviously, but that's gonna be a needle-moving circumstance for Antero. And if you go back and look at the details of that deal, they sold off a point, you know, 1.25 interest in producing wells and I think almost 4% override in non-producing wells, you know, you're gonna to have to check my data, but it, it may be less than 4%. If it is, it's not much, much less in non-producing assets. So, you know, they got $400 million to deploy back into the, tell their drill bits and their operations. And Sixth Street's got a, a really, really good package uh, of some great assets that ha they have an override in with, you know, kind of no go forward carrying costs. And, and that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. So, you know, there's motivation on both sides. And I think a lot of those deals will get done. And, you know, to your point with the magnitude, it does take capital to do it. But, you know, from a risk return standpoint, overrides, they're a great way to deploy some capital with not a lot of risk profile, as long as the, you know, you get behind a good operator that's willing to drill the wells. I just was going to add there too. I think it's one of those, to your comment, Tim, on the, on the whole, you know, not worth the time. I think one aspect that I've talked in kind of private conversations with my peers that still are, you know, at, you know, IOCs and, and in the corporate strategy departments and different places like that. I think what you're running into is the easy methods that may have existed the last 10 years are starting to wane. And so what may not seem like it's worth it now may be starting to become at least worth discussions at least. And I think the biggest piece and what we see is we start to look into that space is some of the expertise that we bring to the table from the Arrowhead side of, you know, two guys here, you know, Matt's, you know, ran the businesses and understands kind of the, the full on view kind of how to lead it. Travis and I worked in the trenches on, you know, doing some of these corporate transactions to understand, you know, how to get both sides comfortable, how to properly view it and expedite the process. But I think from the standpoint of finding new independent ways to do things and new ways to capitalize your business outside of the traditional methods may, be, may become more enticing as the months progress and credit continues to tighten or stays tight as it is right now. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's you don't have enough time for it until you have to look at it, right? Uh, because you have no other options. So no, listen, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. The Antero deal was great. I mean, to see something of that scale happen post-COVID, I think Pegasus did a $100 million deal several weeks before that. So things are starting to shake loose. And you know, when it comes to the corporate side, that sale came from Blackstone on the Pegasus front. That's good, right? That's a great signal that hopefully there's more to come. So Absolutely. 
I appreciate all y'all's time. It, it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed this a lot. I'll give you the floor to close it out. I mean, what do you want people to think of when they see Arrowhead Energy Partners? Uh, what are ways that they can work with you? What are some of the closing messages? I'll, I'll give you guys the floor to, to take it away. Well, first and foremost, we want to thank you for allowing us to come on to your podcast. We really appreciate that time, Tim. In addition to that, you know, when people hear about Arrowhead, I want them to think there, here's a group of folks that are, that are high performing, that are willing to put in the work, that are looking to grow this organization, looking to do mineral deals and producing royalty deals. And, you know, when it comes down to it, our, our mandates are very open. So if, if there's deal flow that is in the Bakken or the Powder or the DJ or Haynesville and you need a partner or you need somebody to to back you on a capital side, they should always kind of think about us. We're here, we've got capital to deploy, and uh, you know we're easy to work with and we'll get after it. Awesome, anyone else? Yeah, Tim, I just wanted to chime in and say thank you. I think uh, the podcast is obviously really valuable for us oil and gas guys, but I think more than anything, just putting positive energy out in the marketplace and in this business, you know, this is a very cyclical business filled with just wonderful people. We've had some great relationships in this business, and this is a tough time for a lot of folks. And I just appreciate you bringing folks on here and talking about good things and figuring out a way to, to move the game forward, which we'll all do. The, this too shall pass, right? And uh, I just think that's good for the industry and uh, good for people. So thank you. No, absolutely. It's, it's been a pleasure. And I appreciate you guys coming on and telling everyone about the new story. I, I wish you all the best of luck. I know you've gotten off to a great start, right? fundraising was was quick and clean you've gotten a couple of deals under your belt so we look forward to keeping in touch and, and seeing the story unfold here in the upcoming months hey guys thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast i hope you enjoyed the oil and gas council represents the largest network of senior oil and gas executives and investors in the world throughout the year we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team by connecting you with executives like Travis, Matt, and Jim, then please email me at tim.powell at oilcouncil.com or visit our website at www.oilcouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.